Hey, it's Guy here, and we've got a great episode for you today from our archives. It's on Burton snowboards. But before we start the show, just a quick reminder that throughout the month of December, we're going to be asking you to make an end-of-the-year gift to your local public radio station because your support helps your local station keep bringing you the news and stories you depend on. So please, Take a moment to give back to your public radio community. Just go to donate.npr.org built. And thanks. And now, here's our episode on Burton Snowboards. I mean, I was like Willie Loman, and I was a traveling salesman, and I would load up my car. It was a Volvo wagon at the time. And I remember once going out with 38 snowboards, and I drove around New York State and visited dealers. And I went out with 38 and I came home with 40. 40 snowboards? <laughs> because one guy had given me two back that he'd bought and said, this is a joke. From NPR, it's How I Built This, a show about innovators, entrepreneurs, idealists, and the stories behind the movements they built. And on today's show, how Jake Carpenter turned a childhood novelty toy into one of the biggest winter sports in the world, and from it, built Burton Snowboards. So imagine being on an airplane in 1977. You sit down, you strike up a conversation with the guy sitting next to you, you ask him what he does. And he says something like, I make sleds for the snow, except you stand on them like a skateboard. You would have no idea what he was describing. You you couldn't have imagined that within 20 years, snowboarding would become a multi-billion dollar industry. And if that person next to you were Jake Burton Carpenter, there's no way you'd have predicted that one day, one out of every three snowboards sold worldwide would be a Burton snowboard. And not because he invented the sport. He didn't. But there's probably no one on Earth who did more to popularize it. And it didn't happen overnight. Ten years after Jake founded Burton Snowboards, fewer than 7% of ski resorts even allowed snowboarding. But today, it's hard to find one that doesn't. And the thing about Burton is, it didn't just build snowboards. It built a culture around snowboarding. It was a culture that was inspired in part by family ski trips to Vermont when Jake was a kid. My dad sort of figured it might be something fun for a family to do when I was around, I guess, seven or eight, and he would take the whole family. I just always had this attachment to snow. I mean, I, to me, it meant no school. And uh, still my favorite thing to do in life is go up to my kids' rooms. And I mean, those days are behind me, but tell them to get up for school, and then after they get up, tell them it's a snow day. One winter in 1966, there was a brief craze across parts of America for a novelty toy called the Snurfer, as in snow plus surf. It was basically a stand-up sled that you could ride down a hill. And Jay Carpenter was one of the thousands of kids who bought one for 10 bucks. It was a four-foot-long piece of wood that was about six or seven inches wide, and it had no edges. And you stood on it on these sort of staples that gave you traction, and you had a rope attached to the nose. It was a little bit like you were riding a bucking bronco just getting down the hill. Wow. But it was fun. And uh, Brunswick made them. They sold 800,000 or something like that. 
But it developed this sort of cult in a positive sense of the word. Yeah. I had friends and we would do it together and we would modify them. For me, um, a snurfer was the opportunity to surf. It was basically surfing on snow. Surfing on snow. Now, in a lot of ways, Jake's childhood was pretty great, even idyllic. But then, when he was about 13, things started to unravel. Jake's older brother, George, was killed in battle in Vietnam. And a few years later, his mother died as well. And for Jake, it was a pretty tough time. He even ended up getting expelled from his boarding school. I mean, I was a wise-ass when I was young, and to a fault. And when I got kicked out of Brooks was a school, and I went up to see the headmaster, who was a headmaster when my father was there and when my brother was there. It was brutal. I mean, my dad made me get in the car, go five hours, see this guy, you know, for a five-minute conversation, and then a long drive home. And that is when I decided to turn my life around and start applying myself to whatever the hell I did. And the way he did apply himself was by figuring out how to take what he was good at and make money out of it. So Jake's first venture was a small landscaping business. And then after college, he went to work for an investor in Manhattan. But in the back of his mind, he never forgot about the snurfer and about its potential to be something much, much bigger. Yeah, I really, from the very beginning of snurfing for me, I saw it as something that could be developed. And I was sure that Brunswick was going to do it or somebody was going to do it. And nothing happened. Hmm. But... You know, in the back of my mind, I always knew it could be a sport. And I didn't have a business plan per se, but I did the math that if I could make 50 snowboards a day, I could make $100,000 a year. And that would be awesome. You thought, I'm going to, I can do something. And the thing to do is make a much better snurfer. Yeah. Make money on it. So I started the company in 77. And and what did you do? Did you, because you were living in Manhattan at the time, right? Yes. And I made my first prototypes in my apartment on the Upper East, you know, how, up on 86th like, Street. Did you have like a shop in your apartment and like table saws and stuff? You know, I was as clueless then as you are now. I did not know how to do it. I was a loser in shop class in school. Like my napkin holder was by far the ugliest <laughs> or the worst. And so there I was with a saber saw and in my apartment um, making them. Like out of what? You buy um, sheets of wood? Yeah, out of wood. The very first, I was modifying some snurfers that were around. And then I said, I got to move to Vermont to start this company. We're not going to start a snowboard company in Manhattan. (laughs) Yeah. So I left my job in New York City in like early December. I thought, well, winter's here. You know, I started a landscaping business when it was spring and you start raking your lawns. And I I had a car, a station wagon that I inherited from the family. box of garbage bags and a couple of rakes. And that's what I started my landscape business with. Manufacturing is a lot tougher than mowing lawns. But I thought, okay, it's winter. Now's the time to start the company. I almost missed the next winter, literally. It took so long to develop a product. And, and by the way, how did, how did you finance it? Where, where did you get the money? Well, my because my mother died at a young age. Um, when my grandmother died, she had some dough. And instead of it going to my mother, it came to me and my two sisters, uh, and so I inherited um, almost $200,000, and I spent 150 of it developing Burton. So your middle name is Burton. Yes. But your last name is Carpenter. So mm. why did you call the, the snowboards or the company Burton? I just always had this interest in the guy I was named after, John House Burton, and I thought that Burton was a 
cooler name. And I wanted to name it Boards. I mean, Boards was part of the name. It was Burton Boards. And then I drove down to Montpelier, Vermont, and incorporated, went to the... It was so cool, did all the paperwork and everything. It was a big moment for me. And I, it started as the Burton Corporation, or maybe Burton Boards. I sort of did some form of crude trademark or put TM next to yeah. it, even though I didn't yeah. have anything official. So you, okay, so you, you moved to Vermont and then to start this thing, and, and then what was your next step? Um, yeah, so I went to this company called Shushin Bent Wood Company, and they made um, curved wood for people that made furniture out of solid ash. Oh, wow. So my first prototype was a piece of solid ash that was just put in this thing to curve the nose, and then I just start riding the Mon Hills, and I literally made a hundred. Wow. But of those 100 prototypes, they weren't all solid wood. I got onto laminated wood, vertically laminated and horizontally laminated, like um, plywood. I went to a friend who lived in California who had a surfboard company, and they would let me make boards in their factory at night. And I would take a surfboard blank, which is six or seven feet long and maybe three or four inches thick. And by the morning, I'd have whittled the thing down to a snowboard, and they would just, these guys were so cool, but they laughed at me. When you went to these factories and you said, I need you to give me this curved piece of wood or this mm. piece of material, and they would say, well, what is it for? What would you tell them? I mean, a snurfer, there was some awareness of it. Mm-hmm. It had been around. So I was telling them that I was making a modern rendition of that. And I always feared that, like, the minute ski companies caught wind of this, that they would just jump on it and I'd be out of business in no time. But nobody cared. Nobody cared. And, and was it just you, like, with this thing, like, messing around on hills? Dude, I was so alone, yeah. Wow. Did you ever come across people like, what? what is that? What are you doing? Yes. It was to the point, literally, if I was on a plane, somebody would ask me what I did, I would make something up because it was just too embarrassing. Because you couldn't explain and... what it was. The concept of snowboarding wasn't something that – it would be like saying today, yeah, I, uh, I ride clouds. Like, that's my job. I make skateboards for cloud skateboarding. Yeah, for sure. Right? <laughs> like, it, it, it was so weird. So so at what point were you able to say, I got it. I've got, this is the one I'm going to make. I hadn't thought about this in a long time, but I remember that specific moment on uh, Mount Washington in June. And you could hike up Mount, you know, they this have. June of. Would have been June of 78. 78, okay. And I'm hiking up there and Hillman's Highway was the trail and I had the board or what I was testing, the final test, and it was uh, horizontally laminated rock maple, very much like a skateboard, but thinner and more flexible. And I rode down, you know, just hiking up a little bit and riding. I was like, okay, this is it. And then I've decided on the construction now. So I go out and I rent this place that's going to be this little um, sort of factory. And I hire two relatives and a friend to help me take these pieces of curved wood and shape them, drill them, paint them, put fins on them, put mat on them, put bindings on them. It was a long process and we, as I said, my original plan was to make 50 boards a day. That was always sort of my goal. Because you thought that they were just gonna, this was gonna blow up. It was, you were gonna need to I didn't, I majored in economics at college. I had classes with Nobel Prize winners, but I don't know if I really understood supply and demand. Did you have a shop? Or? Yes, in Londonderry, Vermont, with Burton boards written on the front of it in big letters. Like, who are the kinds of people who are coming into your shop in Londonderry, Vermont, and saying, yeah, I'll buy one? 
Yeah, it wasn't people out for a walk and buying a snowboard, and we didn't sell any, maybe a few T-shirts, but um, it was people that found out about us that would come there, and uh, people we would advertise in the skateboard magazines and a little bit in the ski magazines, spent some money there. I mean, I because there were these pockets around the country in Michigan and Arizona, there were these places where people had snurfed and like me, and they'd sort of stuck with it, and they got it. They understood it. That first year, uh, what kind of feedback were you getting from people who, who bought them? Did they love it? Did they, were they like, this is going to change the world? Yeah, it was... Um, I mean, I was like Willie Loman, and I was a traveling salesman, and I would load up my car. It was a Volvo wagon at the time, and I remember once going out with... 38 snowboards, and I drove around New York State and visited dealers, and I went out with 38, and I came home with 40. 40 snowboards? <laughs> because one guy had given me two back that he'd bought and said, this no is a joke. You, you would visit ski shops, basically? Ski shops, yeah. That was my first. And then ultimately, you know, some surf shops. And it was, in the beginning, skateboard shops, surf shops, ski shops. Nobody wanted any part of it. I mean, did you have? were you discouraged at all after that first year? Did you think, maybe this is not not going to work, and maybe I should just cut bait? Yeah, I had some. I had a few days that it was tough getting out of bed, just motivating myself. Right. I mean, you were getting rejected all the time, all day long. And you were all by yourself. Yeah. And I am like I'm an emotional guy, you know, having lost people, and I always have to. Yeah. <clears throat> so I had to let go of my two relatives and my friend very quickly. And it became back to me in year two because we made enough boards in that first winter. I don't know whether we made a thousand or fifty. We made enough for three years. So they're just sitting in they're, your Yeah, they're not shop fully, and... fully assembled or boxed. But yeah, they're pretty much done. And so I had one high school kid helping me out part-time. And that was it. And, and how many boards did you guys sell that first year? First year was 300 or 350. Second year was 700. I remember one day in that second winter of selling and packing up the 700th board and thinking, wow, that's, you know, that's over doubling. So what happens between that first year and that second year when you go from 300 to 700? Why? Why did you double the number of boards? Was it just luck? What Exposure. Was going- it was just getting out there, word of mouth. I mean, marketing, our, you know, advertising, placing ads and these ski, surf, or skateboard mags. I mean, I remember going to check the mailbox because dealers really weren't that interested in, you know, stores. And so we would send out these brochures. Right from year one, we had brochures. And we would send them out with a little mail order form in it. And I would go to get the mail every day. And I remember looking in the mailbox and it would be like either nothing or a couple of envelopes. Or some days there would be five or six envelopes. And then you'd open up the thing and it had this crude little order form. And you could get it. You'd open up the envelope and it would be, you know, two T-shirts or something. And then you'd open up an envelope and it would be like four snowboards for a family in Connecticut. I mean, I can remember it so clearly. And where could you actually use them? I'm assuming you couldn't take it to a ski resort and just go down a, a mountain. No, but it was presented. I mean, skiing at the time was 20 bucks a day and it was a lot of money. So this was an opportunity to express yourself and have fun out and do with friends. And it was a cheap way to have a lot of fun when there's snow on the ground. Yeah. You could not um, go in a resort. And to be honest, um, 
I didn't start it as a resort thing. You didn't care. No, it wasn't. That wasn't the intent. It was like a low cost alternative to skiing. But then these kids who then I started hiring more kids. This is maybe year three to do what to just help assemble these boards, put them in boxes and get them out. Because you were still doing all the assembly in that place in Vermont. Yes. And by hand. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. They would just help me get the boards out the door. This one resort, Bromley, you could drive up to this village that was a quarter of the way up the mountain. So we would pile into the car, drive up to the village. Everybody would, if there were four of us, one guy would stay in the car, the other three would snowboard down the hill, and then we'd meet at the bottom and do it again and again. And then ultimately, snowcat drivers would give us rides, and we'd bribe snowcat drivers, the six-pack or something. And they would drive you up to a point? The top of the mountain. Hmm. But it was so challenging to ride those boards. People now, they have these vintage races and they get on old snowboards and I, for the life of me, don't get it. I mean, it's, you know, hard. But it it was just these young, rebellious... I mean, what snowboarding and Burton did is we revolutionized winter life and um, this was the beginning of it. So, so, do you remember a, a moment when, like, in those early years, when, when this thing, like, really started to take off? Well, I mean, in terms of the sport or my company, I mean, it was nothing. I think in the now, in the context of starting a business, people think of internet companies that mm-hmm. just explode yes. in day one, and there just was not a defining moment mm-hmm. in the context of the sport blowing up. I mean, there were big milestones along the way, and. I think time was quoted as calling it the worst new sport. When do you remember when that was? It was in the eighties. Um, yeah, that would have been early eighties. Yeah, and um, part of that time thing, the worst new sport was they said it was more about raging hormones, mm-hmm. and this was these rebellious young men that were making it happen, and then some cool girls, very courageous women, got into it and started doing it, and I realized, okay, we're not going to lose any more money. We might not make money, but I can, you know, manage manage this financially. So it just grew and grew and grew, but at a manageable pace. Why didn't ski resorts allow snowboarders in the beginning? Well, it was, um, there was a, actually a famous case at Stratton, which was a resort, one of the first resorts to let us on where this guy had... Where's Stratton? It's in southern Vermont. And that this guy had broken his leg because of some sign or something skiing and he sued the mountain and I think he tried to get half a million and he got a million dollars so there was this liability um there's this just fear. paranoia yeah. about getting sued yeah and so that was their fear but they ultimately would give us a chance and we would lobby with them and their kids sometimes helped and we would lobby resorts and then if a big resort like we got on Stratton then Bromley had to come along and Magic Mountain and it took years, but it was um, there was no stopping it. Did you at that point also, I guess, start to identify people who are really good snowboarders and, and, and sponsor them? Yeah, well, for a minute there, these kids that had worked for me just happened to be the best. And then there was a rider, Craig Kelly, who actually rode for this company, Sims, who started making snowboards after we did, but they were pretty well-known skateboard company and this guy Craig Kelly rode for them but we were good friends and I'd always told Craig if he ever had the opportunity we would love for him to ride for us and then Sims ultimately sold his company to a bigger skateboard company 
And so we cut a deal, and he wrote for me, and I paid him 17000 bucks a year. And uh, this guy was, um, Craig Kelly was a godsend. And he always used Burton snowboards. That he was, was Burton. So Burton was all over his, his body. Yes. So having him represent Burton, that must have been pretty transformational. It was beyond transformational. Because yeah. you're all of a sudden not only give this advertisement, but you've got the coolest and the best guy who can do all this cool stuff. And mm-hmm. you've got kids seeing this and they're like, well, I want to try this. And I guess Burton's the way to go because this guy uses Burton. Yes. You know what? That's pretty much it. Craig made the sport cool and the brand cool. When did, I mean, as snowboarding started to get bigger, the ski companies must have thought, well, there's money to be made here, right? Like K2 and Rossignol, didn't they, didn't they start to make snowboards? It's just so funny that the ski companies were so oblivious to what was going on in front of their eyes. Hmm. I mean, talk about close-minded, you know. Because they could have crushed you early on, uh, right? They could have destroyed us. And there were all these rumors that some ski company's going to start making them. And we went from being, you know, fly in the windshield of the Hmm. ski industry to all of a sudden we became a threat. In just a minute, how Jake dealt with the competitors who now wanted a piece of the action. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to How I Built This from NPR. Support for How I Built This comes from 3M, from helping drive vaccine and therapy development with advanced purification technologies to developing an adjuvant that helps boost vaccine effectiveness. The research scientists at 3M are delivering innovative healthcare solutions to help us today and prepare us to better tackle what's next. Learn more at 3M.com slash improving lives. 3M science applied to life. This message comes from NPR sponsor Checker. Want to diversify your workforce and change the future? Studies show that employment is the number one factor in reducing recidivism. Fair Chance Hiring provides a path to employment for 70 to 100 million qualified Americans. Choose Checker for fast, accurate, and fair background checks that give people a fair shot at their futures. Learn more at checker.com slash NPR. Hey, welcome back to How I Built This from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. So in the early days for Jake Carpenter, building Burton and at the same time trying to build the whole sport of snowboarding was sometimes lonely. But because he stuck with it and because the sport caught on, the big ski companies, as you can imagine, started to notice. And all of a sudden, the market for snowboards wasn't so lonely anymore. Okay, so when when the big ski companies started to, to make snowboards, what happened to you guys? Well, by the time they started making them, we were maybe on a third of the resorts. And they, um, they didn't want the sport to happen, right? I mean, these ski companies did not want snowboarding to succeed. So snowboarders didn't like ski companies. I mean, people did perceive them as not being the real deal. And we didn't keep that a secret. I mean, we made it pretty damn clear that we were the real deal. Hmm. And But they did have manufacturing ability, and some of those French and Austrian companies were subsidized by their governments to keep their factories going. So from a cost perspective, they were lower-cost producers for a minute there. But it was just they were too late. They missed the boat. 
did you ever have um, as snowboarding really began to take off in the in the early '90s? Did you ever face serious threats from competitors, either big or small? Well, it was always uh, like in the early days it was a rivalry between Bird and Sims, but we were we've doubled the number of snowboards sold for the first twenty years, I think, of the company. So. Sims was a threat at one point. K2 was somewhat of a threat. They got more aggressive earlier on. But no, we've been we've been the number one manufacturer of snowboards since the day I, you know. Did you, um, you know, I, I mean, even though you had this market share and you had this loyal customer base, I mean, a lot of these companies had a lot more money to work with. I mean, you were, your money was coming from sales. Yeah, and ultimately we were borrowing money from banks, but it was very secured. And then we would get bigger and bigger, and obviously we're doubling our sales, so we're doubling the money that we need from the bank. And you needed this the money. You money. needed the money for marketing and for what? We needed the money to make the snowboards because in this industry in skiing, we didn't start this, but you you ship them the stuff in whatever August, September. And then you don't get paid until December or January. So it was always working capital. We've never needed long-term debt, but we've always had this need for working capital. And so we would work with these Vermont banks, and we'd get up to a certain level. This happened like three times. And then we'd get to a certain level, and they say, you know, this this is maybe a fad. We're going to bail. And never because we were late on a payment. or they I mean, we were religious about yeah. paying people money that we owed them. But they just sort of figured, you know, this has been a good ride. We're going to... Yeah bail and then we go to a bigger bank and then a bigger bank and then we borrow we still borrow some working capital but it has become less and less at any point did you think about going public doing an ipo seeking um you know venture capital outside investors anything like that yeah interestingly there was this one company called ride and they started out, and then a guy that worked for us went to work for them, and he was sort of a mid-level manager it was for a, us. It was a competing snowboarding company? Competing snowboarding company. And he went to work for them, and then they went public, and they had a very low price. And the stock went up to, it split, and then went up to 35 bucks. So it was up to 70 on a non-split. So their valuation basis. was huge. It was huge. And this kid was a millionaire all of a sudden. And I felt this enormous amount of pressure like I'm taking care of my people. And, yeah, I bet. And like, just am I doing the right thing here? And so I went and I met with a couple of big New York investment banking firms, and I just couldn't deal the the vibe. It just was like, this isn't us. And then all of a sudden, Ride Stock, which was at 35 bucks at the time, went down to two bucks because they had these expectations that, like Wall Street, just they take things and they project unrealistic expectations. So ultimately, people have realized working for a privately held company has many, many advantages. I guess it was in like 98 that snowboarding became an Olympic sport. That must have been crazy. I mean, you, I I know that you don't like to say this and you deny it, but you are widely credited as the guy who really made snowboarding what it is. And this is became an Olympic sport. How? What did you think when that happened? Like that must have been a pretty amazing moment. It was not a cool moment at all. <laughs> <laughs> wow! Um, I was not expecting that answer at all. <laughs> that was not the answer I was expecting. What happened? Well, FIS, which is a international ski federation, it's a 
Swiss, you know, whatever, governmental body, mm-hmm. and they um, controlled the scene, and then they started having snowboard competitions when they just had, aside from their ski races, and we were wondering what they were up to. And then they just arbitrarily decided, okay, snowboarding's going to be in the Olympics. I mean, they didn't even give me a phone call. They never wow. told us anything. I will take credit for pioneering the sport. And yeah. you would think that you might pick up the phone and tell that person what you're up to or how do you think we should do this? None of that. They wow. just arbitrarily, it's like the baseball player that finds out he's traded when he reads it in the newspaper. And then I go to the Olympics. We've got our team there and I get to the venue and they've got snowboarding misspelled at the venue. How do they spell it? Well, you spell it with a W, snowboarding, but they had S-N-O hyphen boarding. <laughs> this is in Nagano, Japan. I was like, not a good sign, right? So, and then they proceeded to have the, uh, the, the racing thing was hard conditions. And they um, decide, it was a driving rainstorm. And they say, okay, we can't have the men's downhill. We would never have this prestigious ski event in a rainstorm. But no, the snowboarders, they can go. They can get risk life and limb and not be wearing goggles. It's raining so hard. And so, uh, but nonetheless, they've gotten better and they're doing a better and better job. And the American arm, it's a form of, of national associations. They care about the sport and they've got some people that care about the sport and they're trying to do better. But the last two Olympics, the venues for the freestyle stuff, which is what people care about, for the half pipe and slope style, the, the venues have been really sketchy. As your company grew, describe the culture of the company. Was it, I mean, I'm looking at you right now and I cannot imagine you ever wearing a suit and tie <laughs> and uh, and being like a boardroom boss. Like, for example, like where do you have your meetings with your top team and stuff? Like how do you... Well, our meetings, you know, you look at my office, it's three sofas and uh Two chairs and a coffee table, and there's no desk. And our senior conference room where we have our board meetings, it's sofas. You can throw your feet up and bring your dog to work. And we've got 132 registered dogs or people, you know, we sort of keep track of the number. And uh, it resembles snowboarding's lifestyle. And we're a tribe, and we are so focused on the sport. Everybody in that company, you know, damn near everybody in that company snowboards. And because that's our source of energy, that's where you recharge your batteries. And and what if somebody was like, um, Jake, I'm going to be in late today because I'm going snowboarding. It's uh, pretty much the drill. I mean, if it snows over two feet, it's an automatic day off for the whole company. Nice. And last year there were three of those days. <laughs> Which is almost too nice. I mean, I like people to work too. I'm not. It's uh, but people come in late and work late. You know, people work hard there. So that's um, as long as people are giving us a solid effort. I get it if they want to get up there and catch a few runs on a great day. So your uh, your wife Donna, uh, she she actually at some point became took over as a, as the company CEO, right? Yeah. And and how did that happen? What's what's the story there? Well, she came and went, and then um, she was even CFO for a while. This is in the early days. And then when we had kids, she backed off some. She wasn't working as much then. And then when the financial crisis hit, uh, which was really rugged. Which one? The the big one. The 2000, Lehman Brothers, all that crap. Yeah, how did that hit you guys? Well, the bank charged us $4 million to change one paragraph in our loan agreement 
which was called a covenant. When you're borrowing money, your earnings had to represent a certain ratio compared to how much money you were borrowing. And we slipped on that one because it was a very tough year. And we weren't losing money. We were making money. Um, but literally, they said, oh, well, you broke this covenant, so you're going to pay a $4 million fee. And that, boy, I mean, we had to lay people off. We weren't making the money that we had been. Because people we weren't had buying to... snowboards because of the recession? Yes, exactly. You know, it's always been a youth-driven market. It's kids. I mean, people would buy two or three snowboards a year. Then you look at Italy or Spain, two very big markets for us. And the unemployment rate amongst people under 20, it was 50%. Yeah. It was a very tough, um, tough time. And um, through this process of this crisis, and I think it's not unique to Burton, our company culture kind of got destroyed. What happened? Well, I think a lot of people would blame other people for things, negative things that were happening. And there would be finger pointing. And the culture at our company was messed up. And at the same time, I felt there were no women in our top management. And and that just felt wrong to me. So I got in there and I... and. Donna came along with me, and at that level, we were running the company, and I brought her in sort of specifically to help with the culture and get more women in leadership positions at Burton. When you say the culture, I mean, I'm just trying to get in through the innuendo. Was it, was it like bro-ish? Was it like male sort of macho? Was it like – I mean, what what was the thing you wanted to change? Well, I mean, you're not happy when – you're being managed by fear or or you instill fear in yourself that you're going to lose your job or it's just you need to make people people have to understand when and why stuff happens were you responsible for any of that for any of that fear based stuff uh well i think i hired many of the people that were in and around it and i think that um we were all responsible to a certain extent. I mean, I don't think that's ever been a tactic that I've used, hopefully. Mm. But I certainly let it happen under my nose. Do, do you think that, that you have a hard time with criticism? And I ask that because, you know, it, it can be really problematic, right, if you're unwilling to, to listen to somebody that says, listen, I know you built this thing, but I'm trying to make it better. Listen to me. You know, that's. Couldn't be more true, but less and less and less every year. I mean, I did every job in that company. I mean, I made the first board. And for a while there, I mean, we might have had 50 employees. And I was convinced, not in a, in a bragging way, but I could do anybody's job better than they could. But that's not the case anymore. You know, we've got engineers now that I don't even have a hard time having a conversation with them. But uh, I got better at it, and I had the sense to... Um, surround myself with people that were better at things than I am, that I'm not good at. That's been good, and I've learned to delegate. That's not an easy thing to learn how to do, especially when you're detail-oriented, to learn to let go like that. You have to trust people. Beyond trusting, you have to let them screw up and live with it and live through mistakes. And if they repeat the mistakes, then that's not a good sign. Burton's made every mistake in the book, but I don't think we've made too many twice. Why didn't, I mean, I'm sure at certain points you were offered money to, to buy your company. 
I just didn't take those phone calls. You know? Yeah, but I mean, you could, I mean, you could have sold this company, you know, been like a, a philanthropist and I don't know, I'm not saying this a better life, but it sounds pretty cool. It sounds like a pretty great life. Well, I, for a long time, if people would ask me that question, I would say, well, I think I'd become a couch potato and just eat chips and watch Sports <laughs> Center, you know? And so, uh, or, you know, and snowboard plenty, but I mean, it's the best job in the world. Why would I ever walk away from it? That's selfishly, admittedly, that's always been part of it. And I think that we're doing a great job and we're humming along. If, if we were really struggling, it might be more appropriate for me to look at that more seriously. How important is money to you? Like, how important is being rich to you? Well, to be brutally honest, I mean, I enjoy having, you know, the ability financially to... We're going surfing for a week in the Maldives next week, my whole family. Oh, cool. And we're going to have a speedboat that's going to take us to the lineup, and it's going to be epic. And this stuff's not cheap. So I love that, and I would be a liar if I told you I didn't. But it's not the most important thing in life. Yeah. You had a really tough couple of years, and you're just now experiencing the recovery of it. Um, you had knee surgery, I guess, in 2015, right? Yeah. And then, and then before that, you had you had to have heart surgery. Right. And then you battled cancer, testicular cancer. Yeah, and I dealt with the whole process of chemotherapy, which is dreadful. And in the tail end of that, I was in a plane, and I had a pulmonary embolism, which really still affects me. And then I came down with that Miller-Fisher, that form of Gambare. Let, let me ask you about Miller-Fisher because uh, probably not a lot of people know about this, but it's, I guess it's an autoimmune disease that, that can make you temporarily paralyzed. So, like, what was that, what was going on? Like, how did you even discover what was going on? Well, I'd gotten the knee replacement, and then I got home, and I was with the doctor the next day, and I started seeing double, and... and um, and I told him about it. He's like, well, check it out, see if it's if it might just go away. And the next day I was seeing double, and uh, I felt really lousy. And I waited till Donna went to work. I didn't. She'd been through so much with me. And I was just like, and so I went to Dartmouth Hitchcock, and they uh, very quickly analyzed what was going on. And within 24 hours of me being there, they said, if you have what we think you have, tomorrow you won't be able to swallow. The next day you won't be able to open your eyes, and the next day you won't be able to breathe. And were they right? Yeah, that's how it went down. That's it? You get to the hospital and you are confined to the bed? And I'm in an ICU for six weeks. Wow. You couldn't move your body? Yeah. And then people, you know, the ICU people go for hours or days. And I was there for over six weeks. You're like a prisoner in your own body. Yeah. Very much so. I think it's like ALS, just condensed into a couple of weeks. So, first of all, how did you breathe? Through a ventilator. And the ventilator was behind me. I could hear it, but I couldn't see it. Did you have feeling in your body? Yeah. Yeah, my wife would stretch me every night. And I could certainly feel that. And how did you eat? Through a feeding tube. Did you think you were going to die? For sure. 
for a minute. And then, um, you know, my wife did. You know, she told me I was getting better, and eventually I would see these little, like, hints of improvement. What did you start to notice? You know, that I could open my eyes, and that I could, um, I was so into physical therapy right from the get-go, and that I could do something a little better than the day before. And, um, and once you get to that point, then it's game on, then it's up to you. How does that experience change the way you live your life and you interact with the people you love? Well, I sure as hell don't take my family for granted anymore. And um, I do live life for the moment. I mean, much more than ever. I mean, I think it happens through something like that. I don't know why or how, but it does. Or it did to me. It must put into perspective all your success and wealth and the thing that you built, like, obviously that stuff matters, but, like, in the context of your life, nothing else really matters. Yeah, yeah, that stuff couldn't have been further from my mind. I think it is now, though. Now I'm, like, prepared to die. Really? Yeah, I am much more so. I could die, get hit by a bus walking out of your studio, and I still think I'm luckiest guy in the world. <laughs> because of the life you've had? yes. Could you ever have imagined when you were in that first year and you had to fire your employees and, I don't know, that you would have built something this big? I I had no idea that what would happen with snowboarding. I mean, I saw a sport, but I did not see Sean White on the cover of Rolling Stone twice or snowboarding being in the Olympics or um, the stuff that's happened, and it's been the athletes that have made it happen, and we've facilitated it, but it's been uh, exceeded, um, I wouldn't even say dreams, because I never dreamt anything on the level that we're on now. Jake Burton Carpenter. By the way, Burton just celebrated 40 years in business since Jake built that first snowboard in a barn in Londonderry, Vermont, back in 1977. And despite his health issues, Jake still snowboards 100 days a year, and always when there's fresh powder. And please do stick around, because in just a moment, we're going to hear from you about the things you're building. But first, a quick message from one of our sponsors, Microsoft, who wants you to know that the newest member of the Microsoft Surface family, the Surface Pro 6, has up to 13 and a half hours of battery life and an 8th gen Intel Core processor, so you can work for as long as you want to, wherever work takes you. Hey, thanks for sticking around because it's time now for how you built that. And today, we're updating a story we ran about a year ago. So my name is Jane Ock. I'm from Scarsdale, New York. And one day, I was just so sick of opening my refrigerator and seeing brown guacamole. Brown guacamole. We've all been there, right? You scoop out the soft avocado flesh. You mash in some onions, salt, lime, maybe some cilantro. You stick it in the fridge. And then a couple of hours later, that bright green dip looks kind of gross. This is absolutely a problem that people have. And I say to them, would you like a container that prevents gua your guacamole from turning brown? And they're like, oh my God. 
So anyway, about four years ago, Jane started to experiment in her kitchen. She made a lot of guacamole, and she just started to observe that guacamole change color. If I make some and put it in a bowl with saran wrap, it turns brown. But if there was some way that I could eliminate that air and that space, then maybe I could solve that age-old problem. So Jane recruited her stepsister to help out. They found a designer, and together, they came up with a plastic container with kind of a little elevator underneath it that pushes the guacamole to the very top so there is no space between your guac and the lid. And then you simply close the tab to cover the air hole, put it in the refrigerator, forget about it, literally forget about it. I mean, a week, however long you're gonna eat your guacamole, it will not turn brown. Okay, so they had the right design, but for two years, they ran into one problem after another. They were using the wrong materials or the little elevator thing wasn't fitting properly. But finally, a couple of years ago, they got it out of the factory and into the market and they called it the guac lock. You can lock anything up. So tuna fish, egg salad, you know, um, chopped vegetables, pesto, hummus. And the more you can smush it and remove the air holes, the better it's going to save. Uh, so, Jane, this is not my main problem with guacamole because yep. when I first heard the name guac lock, I thought it was to lock your you know, your kids <laughs> out of the guacamole so they don't eat it all before your guests come. No, it is not. But you're right. That's a good idea. That is a problem in my house. That's our problem. I get into the kitchen and I just see like green guacamole around the mouths of my children. I feel your pain. That could be the next iteration of the guac lock. You could add a combination lock. Like a child the... lock or something. Yeah, exactly. Well, actually, it's very funny that you said that because a lot of people say, I never have leftover guacamole, so why would I need this? And what I always say to them is, now you can make it in advance. That's Jane Ock, co-founder of The Guac Lock. Last year, she and her stepsister Sharon did close to $1 million in sales. They're in most of the major stores now, and they're on track to do even better this year after partnering with Bradshaw Industries, which is one of the biggest suppliers of kitchen gadgets in the world. And if you want to learn more about the Guac Lock or hear previous episodes, head to our podcast page, howibuiltthis.npr.org. And of course, if you want to tell us your story, go to build.npr.org. And thanks so much for listening to the show this week. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please do give us a review. You can also write to us at hibt at npr.org. And if you want to send a tweet, it's at How I Built This. And please be sure to check your podcast feed because we have two more new episodes from the How I Built This Summit coming up. My live interviews with Lisa Price of Carol's Daughter and Katrina Lake of Stitch Fix. Our show was produced this week by Casey Herman with music composed by Ramteen Arablui. Thanks also to J.C. Howard, Noor Kutsi, Neva Grant, Sanaz Meshkanpour, and Jeff Rogers. Our intern is Mia Venkat. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to How I Built This from NPR.
Hey, my name is Peter Sagal, and I am here to help you with the most pressing problem facing civilization today. There are too many good podcasts to listen to. Now, why not avoid that whole problem by listening to an extremely silly podcast hosted by me? On Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, it's wisecracks about the week's news, shenanigans, fart jokes, and general silliness. And doesn't that sound pretty great right now? Listen to the Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me podcast from NPR.